We're going to be in Acts 2 eventually uh, today. The, the message this morning is about faithfulness. It's also very specific to something that's going on at Tri-Valley right now. So if you are uh, not a member here, you might be going, hmm, you might get to be invited into some of our internal conversations. But we're going to eventually make our way to Acts 2 uh, and read about the birth of the church. I hope, it's a, I hope it's an encouraging message this morning. I hope that it's faithful. Um, we'll see how it goes. But thanks for joining us. Uh, here goes this. The message is called From Static to Statement, and uh, you'll see what that means in just a little bit. But to begin this morning, I want to play an audio clip for you. I want you to listen to something and see if the message uh, is something that you can make out. Ready? Put your listening ears on. Uh, we we're ready back there with the sound. Listen to this clip and see if you can understand what is trying to be communicated here. Okay, that's the whole message. A little staticky, it's supposed to be. It's not Kaylee's fault back there on the soundboard. Let's listen to it one more time. Listen if you can hear what the, what the message is trying to be communicated is. Got it? I played this for Justin earlier this week. He couldn't figure it out. You've heard it two more times now, you know? It's okay, it's hard to, to understand. You're not supposed to get it the first time. But now I'm going to play for you uh, a similar clip. It's a little bit different. It's been equalized in a different way. So the message hopefully will be clearer and it will stand out what is being shared here. Are you ready to hear the clearer version? The juice of lemons makes fine punch. Okay. Did you hear the message that time? There's a woman's voice very clearly saying, the juice of lemons makes fine punch, which I agree, it does make fine punch, lemonade. Uh, but here's what I want to do now. I'm going to go back and I'm going to play that original clip and let's see if you can hear it more clearly this time, knowing what it's supposed to be saying. You got it that time, right? Okay, those were two clips. It may seem to you like the third one was it a third clip, but that was the first one that you heard. It's surprising when you know what the message is and you're listening for it that you can find it and it comes out a lot more clearly, right? And not along if, I, if that is true for you as well. Anybody wondering if that's an act like a third clip? Like that's different than what you played us at the beginning, Jacob. We're skeptical a little bit, Justin. <laughs> that's fine. Understandable. Well, I wanted to start here because there's things in the Bible that sound like static to us. There are things that we focus on. There are passages that we pay a lot of attention to, and we hear them very clearly because we're familiar with them. And then there's other parts of Scripture that's just kind of like background noise. It's just kind of like static. Uh, and you listen to it. Maybe you, you hear it go by and you're aware of it, but it, it's not something that's speaking to you until maybe you study it, maybe you focus a little more on it, you spend a little bit more time with it, and then it starts to inform your original hearing, which maybe was just static, but now you're starting to hear the message that was there all along. It can seem like a new statement. It can seem like something that wasn't there before, but then when you go back, you realize, oh no, it was there, I just didn't really know what to listen for or what exactly I was experiencing. Um, why are we talking about this? A few weeks ago at Tri-Valley, the elders of our congregation stood up and they made a statement. They said that starting in December, they're going to invite women in our congregation to participate in certain service roles in the Sunday morning worship service. Some of the roles they've done before, some of the roles they don't traditionally do. 
making announcements, reading scriptures, and passing communion trays. You've seen women do some of these things. You've probably not seen women do uh, some of these other things here at Tri-Valley. And the statement that was made has raised some questions for some people. We've been asking ourselves, is this okay? And some of you might hear that question and go, that seems kind of like an easy question because the answer is so obviously no, they shouldn't. Some of you may take that question and go, man, that's such an easy question because the answer is so obviously yes, they should. Why couldn't they? What's the problem here? For those of you who've been in the church for a while, you know that the answer to this question has become a lot more complicated than just a simple yes or no question. And when you start to study this or talk about this with people, the conversation can kind of go all over the place. You may have started a conversation about this topic or this issue and not finished it. And the reason is because this topic or this issue touches on so many other connected issues. I was thinking about some this week. Uh, Here are just a few of the issues that when you start talking about this and what women can or can't do on a Sunday morning in church, speaking into a microphone, whether they're passing trays, whether they're doing this, Bible classes, the conversation just kind of expands. uh, And you kind of have to get into this. And maybe you agree with somebody on one point, but not on one of these other points. And this is just what I came up with off the top of my head. There's way more issues that are related here. And so this morning, we're going to take as much time as we need to go through all of these issues. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that (laughs) because we'd be here all day and beyond. Uh, That's not what's going to happen this morning. But I want to mention that our leaders at the church... For over the past year, the past year and beyond, I've been studying this question and a lot of these related topics that are connected to it. Uh, The leaders have prayed about this. They've studied a lot, man, stacks of books and like a long bibliography that some of you got a hold of and were like, whoa, I don't know if I'm going to be able to read all of that. Lots of discussions. And then we've created space for discussions among the congregation and we've solicited feedback from different groups. Uh, And we've gathered people together in formal contexts and informal gatherings. And this summer, Bill Amanetti, one of our shepherds here, taught a 12-week class on the landscape of this issue, and he touched on a lot of these things. And if you weren't part of this class or you want to refresh your memory, you can go online. The notes and the audio recordings of the class are at our website, trivalleychurch.org. And then this winter quarter, the church will start seeing women serving in these roles more often. So... In light of this, I wanted to just take a moment today, and I wanted to speak a word of encouragement. Like I said, I'm not going to touch on most of this, but what I would like to do with the time this morning is just share with you some of my story. So bear with me. I grew up in the Church of Christ, and I grew up in a church that emphasized male leadership. If you came to the church that I grew up in, and you noticed there's not a lot of women doing not a lot of things, you might ask the question, how come? They're not passing communion trays, they're not preaching, they're not praying, they're not uh, standing on the stage, speaking into microphones. If you asked that question in the church that I grew up in, you probably would have been directed to one of two or both passages from the New Testament. These are from Paul's letters, 1 Timothy 2.11 and or 1 Corinthians 14.34-35. 1 Timothy 2.12, did I say 11? Well, 11 and beyond that area. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verses 34 and 35 says, Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. 
they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. That's the New International Version translation, by the way. My church that I grew up in was a church of Christ, and part of the church of Christ tradition had this understanding that the way you read the Bible is to pay attention with a special emphasis on the New Testament, specifically Acts through Revelation, and you listen for what the early church did, and you try to do it. Well, basically, our philosophy was if the Bible said it, we do it. And one thing that the Bible said very clearly in big blue letters was that women are to remain silent. Okay? The church said this is how you, to be, you are to be faithful to God, by getting it right. And I grew up in that church. And I heard that message, and I thought, I want to get it right. I want to be faithful. I wanted to be a church leader. So when I graduated from high school, I went to Pepperdine University, and I started studying Christian ministry because I wanted to be faithful. I wanted to serve in a church. So I get to Pepperdine. It's the very first week of school. It's freshman orientation week, and I meet a girl named Tessa. Now, I'm having lunch in the cafeteria one day with Tessa, and I remember her telling me that the church that she grew up in had a tradition where women would do all sorts of things on stage. They would lead on Sunday mornings. They didn't have a problem with that. And I said, oh, is that right? So I took out my Bible, and I said, let me show you something. Right there, right there in the cafeteria. I took out my Bible, and we went to 1 Timothy 2. And I straightened her out. And I straightened her church out. And I was just surprised. Man, how come a whole church full of people have never read this passage before. How did they not know? Tessa admitted to me that she'd never heard that verse interpreted that way before. And I closed my Bible and I said, you're welcome. (laughs) I may have saved her from a multitude of sins and possible eternal damnation. And I continued studying the Bible in school, outside of school, different churches that I've been a part of over the last 20 years, and the more that I studied the Bible, the more that I learned that there are other verses in Scripture that are in conversation with these two verses. There were parts of Scripture that before, to me, just were kind of static. They were there. They were in the background. They were saying something, but I didn't really pay attention to them. They started making statements to me. They started to become more clear. And the more that I studied, the more that I experienced, I noticed that the way that my church implemented and applied these verses just seemed a little strange to me. Because I came across passages in the Old Testament where there were examples of faithful female leaders. Leaders like Deborah. You read about her in Judges 4 and 5. She was a prophet. She was a judge. She was a military leader of Israel. There was another faithful prophet named Huldah, that story that we don't hear or tell very often from 2 Kings 22. Huldah was a female prophet, and King Josiah, when he was looking for wisdom, he had a message, and he wanted to confirm that it was from God. He didn't go to Jeremiah. He didn't go to Nahum. He didn't go to Zephaniah. He went to Huldah. That's significant to me. This is part of the conversation. There were women who were musicians and worship leaders in the temple that we read about in the book of Psalms. Aaron's sister Miriam in Exodus was a prophet, and we have one of her uh, songs recorded. This was strange to me. I thought it was strange, too, that the church has such a long history of male-only leadership when Jesus' ministry included women in so many ways that defied cultural norms. The Samaritan woman that he spoke to at the well and then told, go 
and tell them what happened. Tell them about me. She maybe was the first evangelist ever. He spoke with her in a time where that was not acceptable. The women who followed Jesus along with the 12 apostles and supported his ministry financially. Mary at the feet of Jesus in the story of Mary and Martha. You remember this? Martha's in the kitchen doing all the busy stuff, getting ready for Thanksgiving, and Mary's just sitting there listening to the lesson along with the men. She's not supposed to be. And Martha comes in with flour on her face and wiping the sweat and going like, hey, Jesus, don't you think Mary should be in the kitchen helping me out? And Jesus says, no, I think she's good right here. I thought it was strange that women weren't allowed to proclaim the good news of the empty tomb when the first people to ever do so were women. I thought it was strange that I, I didn't think that it was okay for a woman to read Romans out loud in Tessa's church when the first person to read and teach Paul's letter to the churches in Rome was Phoebe. Paul describes Phoebe as a deacon and a benefactor of his ministry. I thought it was strange that women weren't allowed to be deacons in the church that I, I grew up in, but there are examples of women deacons in the New Testament churches. I thought it was strange that we use 1 Corinthians 14 to keep women from praying in church when Paul himself instructs women to cover their heads when they're praying and prophesying just two chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 11. And I thought it was strange that for generations, Bible interpreters have given the name Junia a male suffix and turned it into Junius because the concept of a female apostle just seemed impossible to them. This slide is starting to look awfully pink, isn't it? The juice of lemons makes fine punch. I started to hear these passages, and I can't unhear them when I go to the question, what can women do? What should women do? What does women's role in the church? I can't ignore these. They don't just go away. They start to inform the congregation. They start to make a statement for me. And it made me start to wonder if maybe our understanding and then our interpretation based on that understanding was wrong. Maybe we'd heard these verses incorrectly. Maybe we'd applied them incorrectly. Maybe it was not as simple as the Bible says it, so we do it. I mean, after all, the Bible says a lot of things that we don't do. The Bible says we should greet one another with a holy kiss, and we don't do that. And you might say, well, Jacob, that's a, that's a cultural thing. Yeah, that's what they did back then. We don't do that now. It doesn't apply to us. The Bible says, well, Jesus in the Bible says, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, and we don't do that. You might say, well, Jacob, Jesus was talking to a particular person. That was the conversation that we got to overhear. He's not speaking to us, so it doesn't apply to us. The Bible says... Again, Jesus, we should wash one another's feet, and we don't do that. Well, you see, Jacob, that was a metaphor for, for serving and putting others' needs above your own. And by the way, it's also just gross, so we don't want to do it, so we don't do that. My point, though, is that we do pick and choose, it seems, which verses are authoritative and which ones we do and which ones we justify not doing. So I began to wonder and I began to ask that, is it possible that our big blue-lettered scriptures that were silencing women in our churches are also cultural? Or maybe somebody else who was talking to someone that's not us? I started to ask. Maybe we understood it wrong, or maybe we just understood it differently. I mean, after all, the church has gotten things wrong before. Though often well-intentioned and armed with the scriptures to back up our actions, we have sometimes missed the mark. During the Crusades, the church said, become a Christian or we'll kill you. 
Looking back, that seems maybe like not the best strategy, not the most faithful way to represent Jesus. At one point in the history of the church, the church said, if you give us more money, we'll give you more of God's forgiveness. I'm surprised that lasted more than one Sunday. Biblical justification has been made, even in the churches of Christ, to convince people that slavery and racial segregation in the United States is just fine. We got that one wrong. I'll give you a a less heavy example. I've got a friend who's a minister in in a mainline denomination. He says, Jacob, do you know why ministers wear robes? Do you know how that tradition got started? I said, tell me. He said, preachers and pastors and people, priests who get up in front, they wear robes. It's supposed to cloak what they're wearing underneath. It was supposed to be so that you didn't know whether or not they were wealthy or not, fashionable or not. It hid what, what they did when they weren't preaching and serving in the church. I said, oh, that's not interesting. It was supposed to be kind of like a, an equalizer, making everybody kind of equal, and uh, the focus was not the person's clothes. The focus was supposed to be full. I said, hey, that sounds like kind of a really good idea. But unsurprisingly, uh, it did the opposite of what it was supposed to do, because instead, you're the only person in a room full of people wearing a great big robe, and now you're kind of standing out. You seem like this special person. Well, hold on to that idea for a second. Some interpreters, when it comes to Paul and these, these blue passages that my church kind of hung their hats on, some interpreters say that Paul's prohibition against women speaking in church is not intended to be commands given for all churches in every place for all time from that point on. Instead, they say, what we hear in these passages are intentional, strategic instructions given for making the gospel more understandable and accessible in Corinth and Ephesus. It was a measured instruction for churches that were born in the backyard of the fertility cult of Artemis, who was definitely not for Yahweh or Jesus. And as you read all of 1 Corinthians 14, or all of 1 Timothy 2, or the whole letters for that matter, and if you read them with first century ears, you begin to understand why Paul was so concerned about orderly worship, modest dress, and learning silently. So, let's put these two ideas together. Paul saying that women should be silent then was a way of making the gospel more accessible to his audience. Saying that women should be silent now does just the opposite of that. Kind of like the robes. It's intended to do one thing, but it actually does the opposite. And that seems strange to me. It makes the gospel unnecessarily hard to reach. And I don't like that. Here's the problem. When you get up and you say, maybe we were wrong, and you go back to the Bible with a different interpretation, some people get very nervous, and they get very suspicious that what you're trying to do is just make things easier for people. You're trying to take the standard of Jesus, and you're trying to lower it so that you can fill up your seats, so so you can make more friends, or, or for whatever reason. They think that you're watering down the gospel. And that's a good concern to have. In this case, I don't think that's what's happening. And to those people who are concerned about that, I just want to say, don't worry. There's going to be plenty of things about the gospel that's going to be unappealing to people of our culture. It's going to be a challenge. You could water it down as much as you want, and it's still... I don't want to make restrictions where Jesus never made restrictions. I think it's okay and understandable to be concerned about that, but I don't think that that's what's happening here. 
We remember back in the Gospels, we see the life of Jesus. He often called out the Pharisees who were focusing too much on getting it right. And they were so focused on the rules and the right and the practice and this is the way it's got to be. Jesus called them out and said, you're so focused on getting it right that you're missing what God is doing right in front of you. You're missing the Messiah. And I wonder, wouldn't it be strange if we in the churches of Christ spent so much of our time trying to be like Pharisees that we miss the example of Christ that is right in front of us? When I became the preaching minister at Tri-Valley, I inherited a task of creating a worship roster every quarter. Steve used to do this, now I do this. If you're ever wondering, like, who decides who does the scriptures and who does the communion thought and leads the prayers and things like that, I decide. So if you have a problem with that, take it up with Darren or <laughs> somebody else. I'm kidding. No, you can, you can talk to me. But I do this every quarter, and I go, okay, this person, oh, this, this, and I try to create opportunities and try to give a variety of voices, and it was all men. And every time I go to do that, I'm like, man, we have one of our sisters read scripture, or lead a prayer, or share thoughts. It happens in other contexts. Why can't it happen up here? I went to the elders, and I asked this question. I said, I'm making the worship roster now. Do I have to put only men in these upfront positions? And they said, Yes, please, that would be great if you continue doing that because that's what, that's what the church has always done. And I said, okay, but I want to ask, are you saying yes because we think that God is displeased when a woman speaks in worship? And they said, no, we don't think that. I said, is it because we think that Paul's words in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy mean that women are forbidden to serve in these roles? And they said, no, we don't think that. I said, well, then why are we continuing to practice and perpetuate something that we think is not faithful to the scriptures or the gospel? And here we are. I want to tell you what I think. Three things. Not an exhaustive list, but you get three things for now. I think a lot of things, but uh, here's three for now. One, I think that it's healthy to reexamine your beliefs and your practices. I think sometimes you do that and you find out that you were right all along, that you were on the right track, and you say, good, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing. But sometimes when you do that, you realize that you need to make some adjustments. Two, I think that it's good to not put restrictions where God never intended them to be. Three, I think that it's good to hear the voices of our sisters in Christ at Tri-Valley in our worship service in our small groups, in our prayer groups, in our Bible classes. It seemed good to the Lord to use these women as leaders throughout Scripture, and I'm excited to see what will happen when their voices are heard more clearly in our Sunday gatherings. That's what I think. You may hear all of that, and it may just sound like static to you. I'm not there, Jacob. I don't get it. I don't see it. And that's all right. And I've been talking a lot about myself. I usually try not to do that too much. So instead, I want us to go to Acts 2. I want us to listen to the story of the birth of the church. This is an, this is an exciting and awesome story. It'll make sense in a minute why we're going here. Um, but it's not going to be up on the screen for the most part. So just, just listen to this story. Put yourself in this, this situation. Jesus lived his life, he died on the cross, he rose from the grave, and they were trying to make sense of what they did with it. He said, go to Jerusalem. Just wait for me there. 
Something's going to happen. So this is where the story picks up. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So now there were, staying in Jerusalem, some God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard in their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking from Galilee? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, all over the place, all of these people, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, and they said, ah, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, the other apostles. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And I want you to read the words of the prophet Joel with me, if you would. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Let's read uh, the next few verses together. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. One more slide. Read it with me. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Good job. Uh, he goes on with the prophecy of Joel, and then he picks up in verse 22. Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. He's quoting the psalm here. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And Peter goes on. Stick with me. This is a great story. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died. He was buried. His tomb is there to this day. You can go see it. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of it exalted to the right hand of god he's received from the father the promised holy spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear for david did not ascend to heaven yet he said the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool at your feet okay what does this mean therefore 
Let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Uh-oh. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Man, I should have just got up and said that, right? (laughs) That's good stuff. So here's what happens in Acts 2. Something strange and new takes place. Faithful people get up and they say, is this okay? Is this wrong? Is this of God? Is this, this, is, this is, are they drunk? What's going on? And then the Spirit brings clarity. Peter says, no, they're not drunk. This isn't a bad thing. This is God's Spirit at work. And I'm not just making this stuff up because if you go back to the prophet Joel, he said this was going to happen. Joel, like the, the wah, 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 Joel, like what? Yeah, remember when he said this? Oh, the juice of lemons makes fine punch. It's making sense to us now. This is something that we were supposed to be anticipating. We are now experiencing, and this is a good thing. Joel said that God's Spirit would come, and it would bring clarity. It would bring restoration. So in this situation, the Scriptures are used to bring understanding to what's going on. If you remember at the resurrection of Jesus in Luke 24, he does the same thing to the guys on the Emmaus Road. He opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. It seems to me that something similar is happening at Tri-Valley. There are faithful people asking the question, is this okay? What's going on? This is new. This is different. This is strange. We want to be faithful. Then the Holy Spirit brings clarity by revealing the Scriptures for us. And then, what happens after that is believers adjust to what God is doing among them. In some cases, they change their mindset. In some cases, they change their behaviors. Like any shift that happens in any group, it's going to be a challenge. We just got done studying Ephesians, and we saw over and over again the challenge of Jews and Gentiles gathering together, rich and poor at the same table, being this part of a church with someone who's a slave and someone who's the master of the slave. Men and women, this, this is going to be new and uncharted territory. But what we kept seeing throughout Ephesians was we go together. Unity was paramount. Acts chapter 2 ends with the, apostle, or the, the believers dedicating themselves to one another and participating in fellowship. The last paragraph in Acts 2 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is our challenge as a church. That's what I think. Fourth thing. And today we get to practice that. We get to 
down at a table together. We get to break bread with one another. We get to fellowship. We get to be devoted to one another. In spite of our differences in status, in spite of our differences of opinions, we are all one in Christ. We are all robed in Jesus Christ. And that makes us family. That makes us go together. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word that still speaks to us today. I thank you for this room full of faithful believers, people who want to honor you with their lives. They wouldn't be here if they didn't. God, we seek your wisdom. We seek your will, not our own. Humble us. Teach us. Instruct us. Reveal your truths to us. Most of all, this morning, Lord, I pray that you will unite us. You have set the table for everyone. I pray that we have the courage to sit down at it. That we don't give up on each other. That we don't walk away from conversations. That we continue to seek love and unity as we center ourselves around Christ. Thank you for this church that was faithful. Thank you for these examples in the New Testament of the struggles that they had, the challenges that they faced. Uh, Help us to avoid the traps that they fell into. Help us to learn from them. Help us to follow your spirit more closely and to keep in step. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to point something out as I gather my things and go. You did something very remarkable just now. You sat and you listened to my story. That may not seem remarkable to you. You're like, we do that every week, Jacob. You talk a lot, and that's true. (laughs) But this is something that I think needs to happen more often in our churches, in this church, in our relationships with each other. We need to listen to each other. We need to make it to the end of the conversation without interrupting. We need to understand where we're coming from, see the faithfulness. I want to encourage you guys to do that. Again, we get a chance to do that over there in the Family Life Center with some delicious food together. Uh, That's all I got this morning. Love you guys. Continue to pray for me. Continue to pray for our church.